Hello and welcome to Greta's Generation Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Herman, at University College London Global Governance Institute. A special thanks to our sponsors. It is UCL, but in specifically, we have obtained for the second season the Strategic Initiative Seed Funding Grant from UCL's Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences. So many thanks for that and sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Yongjae Kim. Yongjae Kim is a researcher at the European Institute on Economics and the Environment that is located in Milano, Italy. He has a diverse range of professional and academic experiences. We'll get more into that throughout the show. We'll just jump right into uh, how you ended up at EIE, the European Institute on Economics and Environment. And we'll just trace through your career path up until now briefly, and then we'll get deeper into it throughout the show. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. And nice to meet you guys and virtually. Yeah, it's kind of very, very long story. And I just want to make a long story short. And I just want to highlight, I majored in, in my undergrad. I majored in mechanical engineer. So it's obviously far from economics or public policy areas. But it's much more focused on the mechanics or you know, thermodynamics. That's the topic, the subject that I really enjoyed my, in my undergrad. So first role of the thermodynamic energy conservation. So it's related to the energy field, but it's far from the disciplines of social science itself. After graduating my undergrad, I was trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do in my rest of my life? And, you know, at that time, like in 2006 or seven, like the Korean government and, you know, the a worldwide is quite a, a little bit of, you know, crazy about the climate change issues because a, the, I forgot the title of the book, but a documentaries, the inconvenient truth. When I joined the, a Hyundai automobile company, that's the, biggest automobile manufacturing company in Korea. And because I majored in mechanical engineering, so I had no choice but to go to manufacturing sectors. But I carefully choose the division that I worked. I ended up with the environmental policy management team, which I started my career as environmental energy folks. That's the starting point of my career. Yeah. Right. So right out of your bachelor's, then you jumped right into Hyundai. Which yes, yes, correct. Car company in South Korea. Correct me if I'm mistaken, but as well, the CTCN Technology Center is based in South Korea as well through the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And I yes, think that was yes. set up, that was set up about 2004 or five. So there were a yes. lot of things happening in terms of technological innovation in Korea at that time with respect to low carbon technologies. Is that correct? Yes, correct, correct. Now, I mean, recently, like China catched up the Koreans, the solar manufacturing companies. But at that time, like it was a very promising area, like for a Korean, a manufacturing companies and hybrid vehicles for a, the automobile manufacturing areas. I, I know that nowadays the electric vehicle beats the hybrid, but yes, it's correct. Right. And now I think they still have some technological advantage in storage technologies. So I suppose that will be quite important as the electrical vehicle revolution unfolds. So then you moved into this American international group. What is that exactly, that company? Yeah, I had a brief a one-year experience in a more company in 
try to intrude by kind of finance issues like the climate change insurance, like protecting the digesters, the natural digesters and so on. I switched to Korea slightly, but not only to move the switch to my you know industries, but also preparation for my academic careers in the future at the time. I really enjoyed the work, but I applied to grad school in the United States at the time and I accepted a couple of places and but that's the period that I was always like thinking about my future. So what's the thing that I need to get is study more? Like energy is very diverse and wide spectrums. So in which field should I study? So uh-huh. I that's the kind of I think a lot of people, listeners of the this podcast have serious concerns about and you know. I like energy issues and climate issues, but all the departments have, you know, dealing with it. It scatters all the different places. In this period of your life, 10 years ago about, you thought, okay, I want to do a bit more research oriented, so I should go back to school and I want to get just deeper into this climate change transition, climate change research. Is that right? Yes, yes, correct. And I also like highlight, I could have continue my uh, industry career trajectories, but like I'm really happy about transition from a industry to academic careers because I really enjoy my jobs now. And also like I really enjoy the thing that I'm working on, like intersection between environmental economics and public policy issues. And that actually started off my career transition in period like in 2009. That's an important point. How did you manage to get this visiting research position at the Tyndall Center, which is quite a well world-renowned research institute for climate change? It's like a fast forward to like, you know, summarizing entire my master's and PhD programs and et cetera, and moving into the like Tyndall Center for Climate Change, which is the very, very like vibrant environment for the climate change research. And that's the, my postdoc position at, you know, in 2000 and lately, before a graduating my a PhD programs at Georgia Tech in the United States, like I was like trying to find a job, but United States was the top priority, or I would say United States folks, Americans tend to stay in the United States. But like that's not what I wanted to do, actually. It's because climate change is global commons good problems. It's a global problem issues and trying to understand the better about the European context. That's the my main reason why I moved from a United States to the Europe. Aha. Uh-huh. Just like Sohil, who I had on the show earlier in the first season, you as well did the PhD at Georgia Tech and then you did the Tyndall Center. Postdoc yes. straight after. Uh-huh. Great. And then, so that was a, what, a one year or two year postdoc. And then from there, you ended up at the European Institute for Economics and the Environment. Yes. Yes. It's a long story, make it short, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice little synopsis of, uh, of your CV. And in the show notes, of course, I will put your wonderful website here where you've got uh, the full synopsis and the publications. That's why well, I, I just say it out loud. It's kimyj.com. So anybody can check that out if they'd like to, kimyj.com. So why don't we jump into the publications and then through a discussion of those, we'll unpack some research themes that we're going that are going on with you over EIE right now, and then eventually, of course, I'd love to get some of the work we're doing and discuss that with the audience chronologically. If you can remember, let's have a 
quick discussion about this 2014 paper, which is called Evaluating the Risks of Alternative Energy Policies, a Case Study of Industrial Energy Efficiency. And if you can be quite clear about the difference between alternative energy policies and energy efficiency, because alternative energy can, can refer to renewable energy and cleaner energy, and then energy efficiency is what we would say on the demand side. So what's uh, maybe you yes, can discuss yeah. that one. Yeah. Yeah. Typically in environmental economics literature, the energy efficiency is not, there is no free lunch on the table. So people or firms reap the benefit of the energy efficiency if it is beneficial for them. But in the literature, energy literature and energy environmental economic literature, what we call like energy efficiency gap, the discrepancy between the optimal use of the energy and the actual use of the energy is different. So very careful, crafted energy efficiency policies are crucial to further a rip the benefit of under its border area in the energy efficiency production processes in industrial manufacturing facilities and so on. So that paper that came quite early in the, your PhD, didn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Yeah, this is important clearly to publish. How did you manage to publish that paper so early? Or you just managed to get on the right team or it was something to do with your department where you're doing the PhD? I was a bit lucky, actually, to be honest with you. I mean, I was on board with a great team of researchers who were doing a analyzing a national energy system modeling, so-called a Georgia Tech version of the GNEMS. I was lucky to running that model with top of that. I was a, you know, incorporating the Monte Carlo simulation that I've gained experience in my, during my master's degree at Texas A&M University. Yeah, so it was out of the luck because that's not purely my effort at all. I mean, I contributed, but that's a great team. Without having great team of effort, I couldn't make it. Right. Just for the audience that might not know, and we can just expand on a little bit, what is this Monte Carlo simulation? Normally, risk analysis is conducted with a deterministic, I mean, I know it's a jargon in this area, but, mm. you know, deterministic way. So in other words, it's not considering the risk or you know, uncertainty of the different a wide variety of spectrums or environment and so on. Monte Carlo simulation is doing is a you know, take into consideration of different types of the uncertainties. So mm -hmm. in this paper, particularly, I trying to remember and recall what we've done in the past is the consider the social cost of carbons or you know different types of the a cost of the technologies are very uncertain in the future. So we take into consideration in our analysis. So it means simply stated that you're evaluating energy and more generally speaking, climate change policies to see how they might impact the future, the technological landscape, how they integrate into society and industry. Something yeah. like that. Yes, um, broadly speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I think now we'll just move on to some of this uh, work on patenting. And of course, that relates to innovation because we, you and I both have used patents as a sort of a proxy for innovation at yes. the firm and country level. I suppose this paper in 2018 is not directly related to climate change and patenting activity in the food safety sector. However, it's a good starting point 
to uh, talk about the methods, why we use them, why patents remain important, then we can sort of get into some papers on climate change that relate to patenting and innovation. Yeah, that's an important question because we all know that patents is not perfect measure of the innovation per se. So like that's a period that I've joined a project that, you know, funded by the USDA, United States, a department of the, of the agriculture that analyzing what is the food safety innovation. It also like is emerging a technologies and including the you know, traditional food, a pathogen detection technologies like traditional tax as well. So it is kind of a very wide spectrums. And also like, you know, it's very, sometimes it's novel technology are coming up. Like I cannot think of on top of my head now. So in order to identify the precise a definition of the food safety innovation, like we can apply in the climate change context as well in later, but it's very, very challenging. So we applied machine learning techniques, wiki labeling a techniques to identify a food safety patterns. This method can be applicable to different a types of the novel climate change mitigation technologies like CCS. People a, have already a, identified a patent classifications of the CCS and emerging a novel text, but still something brand new is coming up, right? Yeah, I'd like to speak to you maybe more after the show about that, because uh, I did have a startup company that was applying machine learning to patents in low-carbon technologies. Well, we had gotten a few grants, but not quite enough to start up, but I always have it in the back of my head to get that off the back burner again and see what can yeah. be done. Yeah, so we'll just speak about these other published papers, and then I'm quite interested in the work in progress and under review. But this next paper really relates a lot to my research during my PhD and even ongoing, Jun Zhang, who you also know. This. So you're looking at the impacts of domestic energy efficiency policies and foreign innovation, the case of lighting technologies. And what I, what I did with my PhD dissertation, which mm-hmm. Jun Zhang was, was a chair of, is that we looked at environmental policies and the effect on foreign innovation. And what we found was that, yes, indeed, across the OECD countries, about 28 rich countries in the West and the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South mm-hmm. Africa, we found a very, very strong foreign-induced innovation component, meaning that, for example, innovators in China would be cognizant of the German or Danish really strong, stringent environmental policy, and they would innovate to supply that foreign market with solar technologies, storage technologies, etc. Mm-hmm. I assume this is uh, taking a similar approach. So maybe we'll just you could speak towards that. And then also, I'm quite interested in how you constructed energy efficiency proxies, assuming that you did use a quantitative model. Yes, cometric model is it, correct. And, and your research, I mean, with the journey is fascinating. And, and really, I haven't come across it lately. I mean, in your research, but I definitely read out a later. Yes, the idea of this research is a whole backbone of my PhD dissertation. And the one thing that I want to highlight is that I was trying to focus on more on the often overlooked aspect of the energy policy areas. So people are talking about climate policy in general. A lot of people are talking about the, you know, policy that support the solar tax and wind tax and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But often overlooked 
an aspect of the energy policy is energy efficiency policy. So I was a very interested in trying to tease out the causal effect, but it ended up with the, you know, teasing out the strong, very positive, strong correlation between the domestic energy efficiency policies and the foreign innovation proxied by patent data using OECD data. We are not a looking into non-OECD data at the time. It was hard to get the data itself for non-OECD countries like Greeks countries. In right. that aspect, I mean, you guys research are more advanced, I would say. And the second question you raised is, what's the proxy for the energy efficiency policies, right? How you can right. quantify that, right? So right. dig into the policy documents per se. So country per country. So I constructed by myself to measure that there are various energy efficiency regulations, like, you know, minimum energy efficiency standards, so-called. So you have to purchase and install a light bulb, like which is a 50 aluminums and, and so on. So that's the data that I've constructed by myself. So that's right. the challenging area of that research because typically a researchers and economists, they heavily rely on OECD environmental policy stringency database. I mean, some of you are familiar with that or others are you know, new to you guys, but that's the kind of typically internationally comparable country-wise environmental policy stringency database, which ended up around a 2012 or something like that and will be updated by the end of this year, which is good news for us. Research. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah, I'm happy yeah, to yeah. hear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's the effort that I put extra to a construct the quantified internationally comparable database. Yeah. yeah. So moving forward to this, both these 2019 papers with Charlie Wilson, who we both know, well, you know quite a bit more because you're at the no center there. This has always been an interesting question about the European Union's innovation system. And they have a really strong institution. They have quite wealthy countries. They work together quite well throughout not just climate and energy, but all sorts of different policies. But it's always been an open question why somehow the United States seems to be more innovative. At least it builds these companies and these technologies that do better on the global market. And then a related question is, why can't the EU out-innovate, especially for energy and clean energy? So in this paper, you look at the future changes in the EU's energy innovation system, which is quite a related paper. You analyze energy innovation portfolios from different systemic perspectives. So maybe I can speak towards those concurrently. Yes, that's super interesting. I think it's Nobel Prize winning research question, but I don't think I have a clear answer to that. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, but like my experience, relatively short research experience tells me that United States markets is free market. Free market driven competition drives the innovation in the area of the low carbon tax as well. But on the other end, the European Union's markets are more a collaborative energy innovation systems. So they help with each other to set up the target and common goals and peoples move around different places in Europe quite easily, relatively easily. And they speak the, I mean, same language. I mean, obviously not, but you know, at least common language. So it's easy to like cooperate with each other. So that's kind of fundamental difference between a big countries, a group of countries, energy innovation system. So in our paper is subsequently the published in the energy policy as well. It 
Charlie and a group of the top-notch scholars developed the idea of notion of the energy technology innovation systems framework. So what we called ETIS, a framework in back in 2012. So it was published in earlier papers. But after that, none of the papers looking at operationalize all those kind of quantified variables, in part because of the lack of data, or I don't know, like, because it's very hard to construct a technological specific level of a internationally comparable database particularly right. in developing countries. So in part because of the lack of data, so it's kind of like a stalled area of the research. So we jump into together to construct the database to measure different energy innovation system processes to a fundamentally like measure the successful innovation outcomes, which can be measured a number of a solar panels in, installed in your rooftop and ultimately the greenhouse gas reductions in your country or your region and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's really interesting research. So that, so you wrapped up at the Tyndall Center there, Charlie Wilson. And then I would like to get into the more into the low carbon technologies research and then mm-hmm. specifically some of your current work in progress, which is ongoing with Lena Verdolini who also served on my PhD dissertation committee. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's a small world, isn't it? She's a wonderful researcher and helped me yeah, develop she, a lot yeah. of, uh, yeah. yeah, marvelous researcher. Yeah. Really top notch. I am permitted to speak about it, even though it's not published yet. Right. And you have this, um, yes. you're looking at digital yeah. energy firms. And I think I could be mistaken, but this is related to this virtual power plants, which have been kind of an ongoing conceptual discussion for some years now. And then maybe you can tie that into these emerging blockchain technologies, how that could help. That's a interesting, super interesting research question. And one thing that we are currently working on is a very slowly a progressing actually with, because we are doing a lot of things at the same time. So like, is that to measure the speed over effect of the low carbon technologies across countries, across technologies, across sectors of the industry? Because that's the positive externality that is often overlooked in the policy debate. Let's take the example of like battery technologies, right? Right. So we can utilize batteries as a storage of the standstill, a storage of the electricity generated from a renewable energy sources, right? And at the same time, we can use that battery technologies into a electric vehicle. So we can, I may kill two birds with one stone, right? So right. that's the idea of the knowledge speed over. And it's not easy to quantify the speed over a effect because a lot of things come into play, right? International country barriers or, you know, knowledge stocks are different across countries and across technologies. So it's not easy to measure. So in our work, Elena, I construct a knowledge sphere of metrics across countries and technologies. Just to clarify, what do you mean by knowledge spillovers? I think this podcast is also a one type of brand, a relatively new knowledge spillover a sources, right? Because I chat with you and record the voice, our conversation, and it scattered all different entire world, right? 
So if right. you spend extra hour to listen our conversation, if you get something out of it, hopefully, and that's the knowledge spillover. And another thing, example, is that people move around different places, like my career and like, you know, your career, right? right. So when you move from one country to the other, you can gain knowledge from different people and different textbooks. And, you know, sometimes you can get a tacit knowledge from the people, right? Because it's not embedded in the patterns or documents or it's not written in textbook. You can only learn by interacting with persons. So that's the kind of knowledge spillover effect. And we proxies measuring using patent citation data, which mm -hmm. is not, as we said earlier, that's not perfect measure of the, you know, innovation and knowledge spillover metrics, but at least we can partially measure the trajectory of the knowledge spillover effect. Yeah, it's very important to the global innovation system. And that's a good point to just take a step back for a moment from the research and speak about you a little more personally, because it's interesting that you're living, walking example of knowledge spillovers. And so the question I had that I wanted to ask during the show is, having worked in Asia and then studied and worked in the US and now in the European Union and the UK, what sorts of differences are there? What are advantages, disadvantages between these regions? And what things have you really learned along the way in terms of being bold and asking people for help or asking questions to get a foot in the door somewhere? Let me talk Turkey about the biggest advantage or biggest benefit of moving different countries and is that I can build up trust and the relationship with the top-notch scholars and will be top-notch scholars like Kyle Herman, right? <laughs> so like, this is a, I think, important thing. If you want to go to a industry or, you know, research careers, like the person who are working with you in your early stage of your careers is usually, I mean, influential to your future career trajectories as well. So, Typically, we are trying to find the top-notch scholars and trying to work with them and learn a lot of things. That's the part of the knowledge spillover effect, right? So, right. like, that's the biggest benefit. And the downside of the moving different countries, all of the different places is like, you know, at some point in your life, you have to settle down at the end of the day. That's the, I think, the biggest challenge is. So you've managed to get in these really world-class research institutes and so at one point, I, I can assume that you've just kind of made some, what we say, cold calls, or you just send some emails out there, and maybe some went unanswered, but then at one point, they went answered by the right people at the right time. Did yes. that happen yeah. to you? Yes, yes, correct. So maybe that's my luck. Right. Because in anecdote, I mean, this is what happened with me. I identified that Dr. Nagalini was really working on this, not just the very important subject, but really, really interesting to me. So I managed to just track her down. That's how I yeah. gained the visiting position at FIM in Milano. So I guess you might have done that when you were finishing your PhD. You just start messaging the Tyndall Center and Charlie Wilson, and, and you managed yeah. to get the reply. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So I would say a, that's a typical source searching process, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true, and I think the younger listeners out there should be stated very clearly that, well, you make your own luck, that's one thing, but then secondly, you might send a 100 emails to people that you think are really top-notch in the world you want to work with, and you might just get one email back. You will get one back. 
you will. And then that yes, person yes. can really change your entire life, your entire career. It's worth saying that I think you and I both have been on the end of not getting a reply when you really thought it was a great email or you write a great letter and you said, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about this person's research or how they got to where they exactly, are. Exactly. In other career paths, but in especially in academia, there are a lot of rejections. A lot of rejections. So like, that's why, I mean, people encourage you to go to conferences, right? But I know it's kind of hard in the midst of the like COVID situation. Typically before COVID were like people tended to, you know, hang out and, you know, have a cup of, you know, wines or beers, whatever, to chat about your research topic with top-notch scholars. And then, you know, sometimes you got a job. That's how it works, actually. Yeah, I think so. I guess it's a good point to talk about our ongoing work. And before we get to the last set of questions here, we are both really interested in this question of what is green growth policy and what are the differences among different countries? How is this green growth policy translating on the ground, for example? Is it making a, or helping firms within the country the green growth policy is instituted? Is it making them more innovative? Is it allowing them to be more profitable? And then maybe more importantly, is it driving societies in line with the Paris Agreement to a cleaner, better, more green future? And I will just note to the audience as well, I mean, that's how we connected because you reached out to me quite interested in the presentation yes. at, a, at a small conference that I was doing with Sohel, collaborating yes. with you already. It's a good point. I'll set up a conceptual approach, and then you can speak towards the methods we're using to examine these questions. What we've got going on with the two other colleagues of ours, or four of us in total, is an examination of green growth policies across the G7 countries, which are the US and Canada, the United Kingdom and France, Japan, Germany and Italy. I mean, it's a really salient research question because in, since COVID, the governments around the world, even in China and South Korea, even throughout Africa, have said we are ready to finance this green and climate transition. And here are trillions of dollars. This is what we're going to do. We're going to make these sorts of policies. We're going to drive R and D and green innovation. Our first step was to look at these policies across a number of years. So we managed to find OECD data on green growth. So we look at from 1990 to roughly 2020. The more interesting thing is, so what happens? What are the policy outputs, both economic and environmental? I guess I'll just leave it to you now to discuss that and to discuss the really interesting and groundbreaking methods that we're using to explore that question. Yes. To piggyback what Kyle said about this ongoing research, we apply two-stage approaches. The first stage is, I mean, there are tons of many different observations of the data points in terms of the different indicators to measure the policy input and two different outputs, like environmental and economic output. So it's kind of drawing a dashboard to for a decision makers and policymakers but people are struggling with understanding what is going on because it's so complex. So we need to narrow it down. So we applied a cluster analysis techniques to narrow it down the different small subset of indicators. And then we applied the second stage of our approaches to use a support factor machine learning techniques to tease out the importance of the variables on the outcome of our indicators. 
so that it informs the policymakers about which kind of inputs, policy inputs works in this setting. And they need to take into consideration of their future policy redesigning of the green growth policies in the post-COVID world. Right. In an ideal situation, we'll provide some tools for policymakers to quickly adjust, then consequently fine-tune green growth policies. And as well, I think it gives the citizens, the society, and firms and companies an idea how these policies are affecting the economy. And as well, if indeed they are helping to build a greener, more environmentally friendly future. I'm really excited that once we're, we're almost, we're getting to the end of that project. So I'm yes, really yes. excited to, to release that. And, and I think we've got a nice base for future research there. And I just wanted to tie a bow in that about the machine learning techniques. Why are they so important here? And how in the near future will we continue to leverage them? Because machine learning techniques allow us to, I mean, we can do conduct the analysis with as many variables as possible. So in our analysis, we use a about a 50 different types of the indicators, but at the end of the day, I and mean, we can use 200 or 1,000 different indicators, and then we apply our method and to tease out the potential causal effect. So in a sense, if the listeners out there are familiar with building regression models, in the past, what we would do is figure out what do we want to look at as our dependent variable. And that's explained by the independent variables and control variables, wherein here with these machine learning techniques, what we can sort of do is throw up on the wall 2,000 variables and have the machine identify the ones that are the most important and in that sense sort of throw out the erroneous variables. And we can really build super accurate models that way. And as well, I think it will help for this sort of predictive, anticipatory governance. So that would mean that straight away, policymakers would be to reflect on the policy. It wouldn't be five, ten years down the line. So they can sort of fine tune, as we said, the policies over time. That's great. So we'll update the audience on that ongoing research. Perhaps we'll have another show to talk about that in more detail once it's published. I'm quite cognizant of your time. What I wanted to do next is move on to the standard final questions. And this is to engage directly again with, with our audience, which the Greatest Generation podcast has been specifically funded in order to provide younger listeners mm-hmm. with ideas about if they are interested in climate change or the environment, what they can do, not only as a career, but if they, they just want to participate some way. So these last several questions are directed towards the younger generation. So the first one is, what advice could you give to our younger listeners who are now perhaps quite anxious to start their career and interested in climate change and the environment? I will say, based on my experience, it depends on where you go. I mean, the field that you study, the way to understand the climate change issues are completely different. Let me take my experience with uh, two recent papers, like energy innovation systems are more like social science approaches and speed over effect papers are more environment economics and literature. So like you need to think carefully. You could ask your, you know, advisor or, you know, undergrad supervisors or 
whatever, at least a different a group of people like economists and so on to figure out what would be the perfect fit for you. Or, I mean, you can experience and you can, you know, change your careers or, you know, topics of your study. But in order to minimize the negative side of the, you know, moving different, too many different fields, I mean, so you need to, I think, seek advice from your peers or, you know, seniors. Right. I mean, that ties back to what we were speaking about earlier, just kind of being bold and asking for help when you need it, asking yes. for advice. Yes. And I think the important point there is from your peers as well. Because your yeah. peers are encountering uh, the same anxieties, and we've been there, you and I, 20, 22 years old, and it's a stressful, pressure situation. So that ties into the next question, Rizzi. So if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self that piece of advice, what would that be? At my early undergrad experience in South Korea, it's a typically like standard stereotype Asian guy at the time. I would say to myself at the time, like, be brave and challenge more uh, a lot or experiment more and, you know, get diverse experience and, you know, mistake as much as possible at the time is acceptable. You know, if you get a getting older and older, like, you know, sometimes it's afraid of mistakes, right? So any failures or mistakes, whatever you can do, just, you know, do it. I don't want to advertise some specific products in this, uh, you know, podcast, but I would say that just do it. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. And this is sort of the reverse question, the, the final question here before we wrap up. Picture you're 18 right now. If you knew the wonderful work and accomplishments that you've attained in, in climate change research, if you knew that was going, going to happen when you're 18, what would you think? Would you think this is, that's not me or that's impossible? Or, and how circuitous was your path to success? Hmm, okay, that's also interesting and challenging question, actually. Yes, I will say so. Like, because, I mean, climate change is actually, it should be definitely take into more consideration in any other daily lives and in policy debate and academics and as well. So even if I were a 18 years old at the time, like, I would say, like, yeah, climate change is definitely important topic in my life and in my a research topic and any aspect of my life. Yeah. It's been wonderful having you on the show, Donji Kim, and I'm really excited to continue our work together and our conversations just about life in general. I will, uh, in the show notes, provide your website and the website of the European Institute of Economy and the Environment. If any of the audience would like to get in touch with you, your information is on the website. And anything else you would like to say before you leave, uh, you can go ahead and say it now. Otherwise, yeah. uh, until next time. Yeah, thank you for having me. And just I really enjoyed the conversation. And it's kind of retrospect of my earlier lives. And it's kind of a meaningful moment for me as well. And I wish and I sincerely hope that this conversation will be helpful and any of you in the world out there. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. Thanks again, and we will speak soon. Thanks for listening to this latest edition of Greatest Generation Podcast. I would direct your attention if you'd like to find out more information on this episode or any other episodes to greatestgeneration.com. Last quick note, thanks to the UCL's Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences Dean's Strategic Fund which has again sponsored this second season. 
Hope to see you next time.